Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about police reform, and then we're joined by author Kelly Fabian to talk about her book, Holy Vulnerability. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. Really, I think this is probably Brian Fromm's favorite day of the week because it is... Hump day. Happy Wednesday, people. <laughs> I got to be honest. Day. I think it's really grown on me. I, I think I probably yeah. was uh, was not as malleable early into the, uh, the years, the months, the years, the months of the show. <laughs> How long have we been long doing the show? <laughs> early years. We, uh, we've, we've done best of shows. I think our first best of show... We'd only been doing it for a few months. That's I right. Like, I don't. I don't think we have enough shows to compile a best of. Like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> quite so a ride. Okay, a couple of quick things, real quick, before we dive into a conversation regarding police reform and criminal justice. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, eleven sixty hope dot com slash The Common Good, Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk, and wherever it is you get your podcast. That could be Apple Podcast or Spotify or a different one that I've never heard of, but you can uh, subscribe, rate, and review, easy for me to say, at any of those platforms, and uh, we're really, really grateful for that. I don't know if you saw this. Actually, there's a couple of websites, Brian, that I just sort of tend to frequent throughout the day to kind of see what they're covering, and this one was at at the top of a lot of different Christian websites I saw. I got one here out of Christianity Today another one out of Religion News, uh, about a bipartisan network of Christian groups launching police reform initiatives. What's going on here? Yeah, this is really interesting. Let me read out of the Religion News article that gives more of the background. It says, a network of more than a dozen Christian groups is launching an initiative to address police reform, the Prayer and Action Justice Initiative, bringing together Black, Hispanic, and Asian organizations along with groups focused on prisoners, prayer, and public justice, will advocate for greater equality, accountability, and transparency in the criminal justice system. Uh, Justice, uh, Justice, Justin Gaboni, who we've talked about, he's the president of the AND campaign. Mm -hmm. Uh, He said the church as a whole, especially certain parts of the church, have not been very clear where they stand on racialized violence and on racial justice in general. Uh, We don't want any ambiguity where we stand on justice. And so our thought is that it is time for the church to unite. And through uniting, we'll have the credibility to lead on the issue of racial justice. The coalition, which launched on Wednesday today, includes the National Association of Evangelicals, National Day of Prayer Task Force, Asian American Christian Collaborative, National Latino Evangelical Coalition, National Hispanic Christian Leadership Conference, Mm -hmm. One Race and the Church of God in Christ, a historically black Pentecostal denomination and also includes prison fellowship. You might remember Chuck Colson started that yep. uh, and the center for public justice. And so uh, stopping there, it is, uh, I think anytime there is um, there is coalescing together, anytime there is reaching uh, across uh, racial differences or maybe even political differences or whatever else uh, denominational differences, I think is helpful because You know, what do we often hear in this conversation, say, about police reform? You've got got, you're you're led to believe that everybody either believes uh, that the police should be completely left alone or the police should be completely disbanded. And you're like, well, I really don't believe either of those things. Mm -hmm. And and so here to have these groups going, you know what? We as Christians, that's what binds us together. We want to have a conversation and even come up with some of our thoughts on how to kind of keep this ball moving forward that our culture has been wrestling with for the last months. And obviously some people wrestling with for years. Right. Uh, I think, I think this is a really positive step. Yeah. And Gaboni in this uh, Christianity today article 
talked about how they want to work at it uh, like it's on the front page, even when it's not like with that mm-hmm. level of intensity, which is what we saw a number of leaders of color saying after George Floyd, like, hey, the the adrenaline for a lot of y'all is going to eventually die out here. And uh, I mean, we even did a couple of articles about like not losing sight of the goal or running out of steam, speaking specifically to white evangelicals. And I think, you know, again, if you missed the Daniel Hill interview from a couple of days ago, Ooh, holy smokes, yeah. like that's that's a guy that I, I think is uh, is offering some really, really, really helpful perspective and wisdom. The article at Christina Today gives a little bit more of the background. It says at the heart of the nonpartisan effort are a set of broad priorities that include some specific policy changes. For example, the initiative is calling for greater public disclosure of reports on use of force by law enforcement agents deaths in custody, and other metrics. Other elements of its agenda include easing sentencing sentencing laws and limits on parole releases, as well as the use of faith-based prison programs and other infrastructure to help inmates prepare, prepare for life after release. I'll give a quick plug. That's what our community freedom is all about. We're about to actually plant our third church in a prison uh, like in the next month or so, which is wow. crazy that we're able to do that in a pandemic. It goes on and says the project comes two years after President Donald Trump signed a bipartisan criminal justice reform bill into law that moved ahead, thanks in part to the support of some leading Christians, including evangelicals and black ministry leaders. However, the changes that measure made were widely seen as only a beginning of work on the issue. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest. I mean, maybe I'll just ask you, Brian, how familiar were you with this two years ago? Oh, I certainly not very familiar. You know, I, I, think like a lot of people who live out here in the suburbs, I think that a lot of I'm shielded from a lot of this conversation. And and so I think that's what's made the last couple of months so interesting is like that now there's nobody shielded. And so I'd say I'm much more cognizant now than two years ago. And something I appreciate again about the coalition, some people they immediately get their, you know, well, is this a liberal thing? Is this a conservative thing? Is this a whatever? We we like to put uh, you know, we like to put uh, t- uh, tags on these types of things. And you've got Justin Gaboni leading this. And I read here that he was a uh, delegate twice to the Democratic National Convention. But then you've got Chuck Colson's organization. You also have Benjamin Watson, the former NFL player, who's a very out- outspoken conservative advocate. So this really does seem to be trying to say, hey, this isn't a political thing. Uh, these are believers in Jesus going, how do we do this well? How can we be better and how can we as Christ followers help lead the way here? I think this is what we're called to do. It's a lot like what you said, the heart behind what your church is doing by going into churches it's or going into prisons. It's this yeah. thing that says, hey, those who uh, who may be getting a raw deal through the system or where there's brokenness in the system, uh, those people can't be forgotten. And we need to fix the systems. We need to have these hard conversations. And so, again, uh, I, I would... I would caution people to do their best not to just politicize this, to read this and go, this is a liberal thing or this is a, a conservative thing. No, this is a yeah. uh, this is a good thing that I think we need to constantly be asking questions about all of our systems, criminal justice, police, right. political systems. We need to be asking these questions. And it feels like these are some of the right people uh, in the faith community to be asking these questions. Well, and it's always interesting to me, too, that sometimes in some circles – criticizing, let's say, criminal justice or even decisions from the federal government, people will assume that that's like being unloving. But I think of like the people that love me most personally, just as a as a human, they're the ones that are willing to call out like, hey, man, I love you to death. Uh, You keep doing this thing, though, and it's driving a wedge between you and the people that you love most or it's Mm -hmm. unhealthy even just to you. Like we've somehow gotten it twisted up that 
to in any way offer criticism is to be unpatriotic or unloyal or sure. unloving. Now, I think there are obviously ways to be critical that can also be those things where you're like, man, all you do is punch holes and stuff, but you're never, you know, offering any kind of solution there. This is why, by the way, if you're not following the and campaign, I can't recommend enough that you do. We've mentioned them a bunch of times on the show. We, uh, we talked about the book what was it, a week or two ago. They, they just, I think they're doing remarkable work right now. Even in this religion news article, Gaboni talking about the police force, he says, we know that it's not an easy job where he's, they do need to be held accountable and do a better job in many instances. They're a part of our community as well. That simple statement alone. is like, Hey, it is a, it's a both end. Yeah. There's some, yeah. Areas that maybe accountability needs to be increased dramatically, but these are also people that are a part of our community. They're not these siloed, you know, individuals that live in a tower somewhere and just don this uniform 40 hours a week. And I think even that reminder is, uh, is just a really, really important one. And I, you know, I'm grateful for people that are doing work that honestly, when I read these two articles, I think, thank God there's people a billion times smarter than I in (laughs) doing this kind of work because it is, uh, I just think it's really, really necessary and really, really needed and uh, forward to that coming up next Absolutely. kelly fabian is the author of a new book holy vulnerability spiritual practices for the broken ashamed anxious and afraid that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope for your life hey everyone welcome back to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian from we have pastor and author kelly fabian on the show for the first time welcome to the show kelly thanks so much ian it's good to be here would you just take a minute or two or three or nine, if you want, and uh, and just introduce yourself to our audience? Sure. This is always a little awkward, but um, so I live in the Chicagoland area, and I work at Willow Creek Community Church. I've got three grown daughters. Two of them are stepdaughters, and one's um, Jamie's my daughter. Um, they're all grown and either out of or in college now. Um, I was a lawyer for 13 years, which often scares people off. I'm actually still a lawyer. Um, and I'm trying to finish my CLE as we speak, actually, so I can keep my license, um, which isn't so fun. But what's cool about it is as I'm listening, I start to get a little stressed out because I'm like, oh, yeah, I got to remember that. And then I realize, wait a minute. I'm not practicing law anymore. I don't really care. This doesn't need to stress me out. Um, because about, let's see, 10, seven years ago now, I left my law practice and went into full-time ministry at Willow. And I've had various positions, but um, currently I'm the pastor of protection, conciliation, and doctrinal casework, which is a huge mouthful. But essentially, I kind of deal with all the hard stuff is the way I would say it. Nothing good really ever comes my way. So Mm. maybe that's why the common good will be good for me. (laughs) Um, But last thing I'll say is um, a couple of things I'm proud of. um, In addition to the work I've done is just a couple books that I've written. One that came out in 2018 called Sacred Questions, A Transformative Journey Through the Bible, which is a devotional, a full year devotional. And then one that's coming out next summer that's called Holy Vulnerability, Spiritual Practices for the Broken, Ashamed, Anxious, and Afraid, which you can read to say all of us. Yes. Yes. Right. Right. Kelly, I'm curious, uh, just part of your story, how do you go from uh, practicing law into working full-time ministry at a place like Willow? What, what happened there? 
That's a great question. Something huge happened, which was right in the middle of my practice. And of course, I didn't know it was the middle at the time, but I came to know Christ. Um, I didn't grow up that way. I didn't grow up really um, going to church or anything. Um, But in 2008, I had a very dramatic conversion experience that I don't think I or anyone would have ever expected, and it completely changed my life um, and the trajectory of my life. Um, So I practiced law for a few more years after that, but I became so enamored with uh, wanting to share the gospel with people that it started to become sort of a tension um, because I was a trial lawyer, and as a trial lawyer, you must hate your enemy. You know, you have Mm -hmm. to be opposed to your adverse counsel. And like, I really just wanted to tell them about Jesus. So there'd be like moments we'd be in these, you know, big legal discussions. And then I'd off to the side, be like, Hey, I got to tell you something about what happened to me. Um, Long story short, I felt God calling me out of that. And actually before I even had a job at Willow or even knew there would be a job at Willow, I resigned my partnership at my firm. And, um, just a few weeks later, actually a position opened and was offered to me and it was a part-time position. So I went from being a partner at my law firm to this part-time position at Willow. Wow. And I don't regret it for a single second, even though it was a pretty big jump. Goodness. That's, it's funny because we had Brian Zondon yesterday and he said that his conversion was like a, re, a really dramatic experience as well. And I, mm. I just so fascinated to hear those stories. I'm, I'm also really interested your first book is called Sacred Questions. And I think for a lot of people, that might be surprising to them. Like, oh, devotional isn't about questions. It's about giving mm-hmm. answers, it's about helping people find solutions. Why do you think questions, and maybe more specifically sacred questions, are so needed? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think what I discovered um, during the probably second kind of position I had at Willow which was writing devotionals Hmm. was that the way that I read scripture and I have, I don't really know if this was because I was a lawyer and, you know, we use a lot of questions or whatever. And it's part of my training. I'm not sure if that's it or something else, but what I realized is that while I read scripture, these questions just kept coming up in me. And Hmm. um, what I started to piece together is that these were questions God was presenting to me about myself, about who he is, about who we are, about what the church is, just all kinds of things as I read through scripture. And I started to sort of use that as the model for the devotionals I was writing, mostly because that was the model that God was teaching me in my own study of scripture. And what I learned was I stopped, I don't know, I wish I could show you an image, but I stopped Put, sort of holding my hands over scripture, if you picture mm. the Bible and my hands on top, and starting to put my hands under scripture, sort of receiving what God was giving to me as opposed to imposing, you know, my own agenda or my own thoughts or, or whatever on top of scripture. That's good. And I think that's what sacred questions does for us, allows us to be under scripture. I love that. Ian kind of touched on it, Kelly, but I'm wondering what would you say to the people, you know, kind of grew up with the Bible and feel guilty when they have questions and feel guilty when they either don't understand or things are confusing and and kind of feel like I shouldn't have questions about the Bible. Mm. Mm, That's a great question, too. Oh, that's a tough one. We we carry so much baggage with us um, from growing up and what we've heard. Um, 
And I guess, you know, the, the best thing I could say is just to, if you look at scripture itself, it's filled with questions. And in fact, there's a great exercise you could do um, going through the gospels and paying attention to all the questions that Jesus asked. Hmm. Now, granted, this is the opposite. We're sort of asking of him. But I think questions, um, and if you go even look at the Jewish faith now, but also at Jesus's time, questions formed a really significant part of that faith and about how you came to understand who God is and and then who Jesus is. And so I think just maybe trusting that God is big enough, you know, for the questions that you have. You see them in the Psalms. You see questions elsewhere. Um, you know, who am I to go? Who am I? And why would you send me? You know, there's all these questions that people in Scripture wrestle with. And so I think just maybe trying to turn away from the guilt piece, which is difficult, but just sort of trusting that the questions being raised um, are coming from somewhere and just to honor that and to know that God is big enough to handle those. See, that's so good. And I think some of the things that I've noticed since becoming a father is that kids ask questions constantly, like all the time. <laughs> yeah. And Jesus seems to think that kids are actually closer to the kingdom than what we might originally think. And I, I've often wondered, like, maybe it's that just mm. holy, sacred curiosity. Like, I don't know what this day holds. I don't know what this is supposed to do. And somewhere like in adulthood, you know, we kind of get that beaten out of us a little bit. And I think, uh, I think that's unfortunate, which is why I think your first book, is so fascinating to me because like you were saying, especially on Facebook, social media, it seems like everyone has the answer and we're intent on like <laughs> shoving it down everyone else's throat rather than sort of coming with just this vulnerability and these questions, which brings me to what's coming up next. You have a new book coming out next summer called Holy Vulnerability, Spiritual Practices for the Broken, Ashamed, Anxious, and Afraid. And like you said, AKA all of us, I'm going to yes. ask her about that coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And we have for a second segment, pastor and author Kelly Fabian, who has written not only Sacred Questions, A Transformative Journey Through the Bible, but has a new book coming out next summer called Holy Vulnerability, Spiritual Practices for the Broken, Ashamed, Anxious, and Afraid. And I'm wondering, just to kind of get us into it, what's the general 30,000-foot perspective on this book? Yeah, I'm super excited about it. Um, the, the premise of the book, or the essence of it, essentially, is that um, we have so intellectualized our faith that we've diminished the role and the importance of our bodies. So mm-hmm. we, our bodies on earth, and Jesus, God, came to us in a body. And yet, so much of our faith is in our heads and in our words. Um, and of course, those are important. But I wanted to examine how much when things are going bad, so like when we're in our brokenness, when we're feeling shame or fear or anxiety, um, we use our bodies in unhealthy ways. And just, I mean, you don't even have to go that far. Just think of sort of the most simplistic, like people who bite their nails or crack their knuckles, just these little ways that we seek to cope with discomfort in our bodies. And if we then turn to our faith and say, okay, now I'm going to read something about God, it doesn't connect to our bodies necessarily. So there's this gap that exists and we continue to cope using our bodies and try to um, sort of uh, 
meet God in this intellectual way. So I started thinking, well, what if we started trying to meet God in a physical way with our bodies, just as we try to cope with that? help us in some way? Would that bring us closer to God? After all, he made these bodies. And so mm-hmm. that is the book in a nutshell. It offers that, you know, in the beginning, that kind of setup, and then goes through um, six practices that are bodily practices. That's hmm. you, you touched on this, but I'm, I'd love for you to expand even more. What are the dangers, in your opinion, when we over-intellectualize or, or our faith just lives in our head where we make this separation? What are the dangers for that? Oh gosh, they're they're so significant. I mean, in part, it's it's separating ourselves in a way that God didn't make us. So you know, He made us in bodies, put us in a place where there are smells and things to touch, um, and in that sense, it's a great blessing that we forego all of those things if we disconnect and compartmentalize. It's sort of like you stop you it's easier or it's more natural to notice the blessings of God in the physical sense if you've connected those two things before. So I think Mm -hmm. that's one is you kind of miss the blessing. Um, The other thing is that I think um, our bodies are there whether we want them to be or not. Um, And there's there's a a lot of philosophers and poets and others who say that, um, you know, humans are the only created thing that seek to be other than what they are. So a tree is just a tree and a bird is just a bird. They're not trying to be something else. And we are always struggling against our physical existence. I don't want to be human. I want to be God or I want to be less than. I want to just lay here and and be less than human. There's all these ways that we struggle against our humanity. And in that way, we don't allow ourselves to be fully who God made us to be. So if you just look at Jesus and if we were to be like Jesus, there's all kinds of stuff going on in his body that he does in the world. And we miss that entirely. You can be a Christian in your head and never do anything, right? Like you never do anything. You never touch your neighbor. You never serve them. You never, whatever. There's all these different things that we miss um, that Jesus shows us how to be truly human that we don't do if we're in our head. That's really good. I remember hearing George MacDonald, who's just this, uh, he's a Scottish author and poet. I think he was a pastor too. And he's, he said something years ago that I used to like where he said, you don't have a soul, you are a soul, you have a body. Mm. And I remember 15 years ago that really resonating. And the more I started really reading about a theology of the body and honestly coming in contact with groups like The Practice and others that are asking these other physicality questions that I had never raised before, I started to really push back against that sentimentality. Like, no, oh, you are a soul and your body is just a thing that you have. Don't worry. Like that's going to burn. Yeah. The world's going to burn. And the physical is important, but it, it doesn't actually matter. What, what I want to ask is how does vulnerability play into that? Because I feel like, you know, Bray Brown is certainly someone who's popularized conversations mm-hmm. around vulnerability the last, you know, five or six years. But how do you see vulnerability kind of intersecting with this need to better understand the physicality of our lives? Oh, okay. Here, I'll give you a personal example. Um, I am not a great flyer. So anytime I fly, I have these rituals. Like, it is laughable, honestly, if you were to watch me get, like, as soon as I get on a flight. Okay, here's what happens. I get out my big headphones. I have this neck pillow. 
I have my iPad, I have two pills that I take, plus I'm relying on this little bottle of wine that I have to have, you know, that they serve on international flights. Yep. Um, then I've got the like the headphone, the big headphones that I mentioned, but I have little headphones too, because sometimes you want the little headphones, you don't want the noise canceling just because you want to hear what the pilot says. I have mm -hmm. to sit in the window seat. I have so many books and, and movies, you know, both loaded on my Kindle, but then I also have a hardcover book because you never know, maybe the iPad's not going to work. I mean, <laughs> you guys, it is insane. And so I have all this stuff and I'm on a flight one time this is kind of how the book came to be. And I look at this guy sitting next to me and he literally has nothing with him. Nothing. I'm not talking about like he has a little bag. He has nothing. And I'm looking at him like, oh, this guy obviously forgot his bag at, in the airport. I better say something because no one would take a flight. And this was a, this was an international flight without anything. And like, no, he had not left anything. This is how he was traveling. And it struck me so strongly in that moment how much I cope with my fear of flying by having all these comforts that literally don't do anything. They don't make me safer. You know, they just make me feel a certain way. And I cling to them. And I started thinking about, like, what would it be like if I flew and didn't have all this stuff? And it right. was so scary. Mm. I would feel so vulnerable, even though nothing would be different. I mean, I'm not more likely to crash or not crash if I have my headphones and my neck pillow and all that stuff. But for whatever reason, I cope with the, with this feeling of intense vulnerability being on a plane by surrounding myself with physical things to make me feel better. And I think this became sort of a uh, model for what we do in lots of different areas and lots of different ways in our lives. We, we are vulnerable people because our bodies break down and can be hurt. And we find all these ways to cope with that using our bodies to bring us, you know, into safety or in control or whatever we feel like it can do. But we're always covering up for this vulnerability. And when we do that, we miss, in my view, the ability to encounter God because we have so many defenses and we're actually taking from God what rightly belongs to him, which is security and total control. And, you know, you could go down the line right. instead of trusting him fully. We are trying to protect against all the things that we fear. Gosh, I know that I'm not alone when I say I cannot wait for this book. The book, again, is called Holy Vulnerability, Spiritual Practices for the Broken, Ashamed, Anxious, and Afraid. And I know that we're almost out of time, but real quickly, where can people go to learn more about you or your work? Um, I do have a website. I don't keep it up too often, um, but so probably Facebook. But my website's kellyfabian.com. Um, and I've got you know Instagram and, and Facebook. Those are probably the best places. That's wonderful. That voice you've been hearing is Kelly Fabian, author of Sacred Questions and a new book that comes out next summer, Holy Vulnerability, Spiritual Practices for the Broken, Ashamed, Anxious, and Afraid. Kelly, thank you so much for taking the time to thank join you. us today. Thank you. That was fun. I appreciate it. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. And uh, fair warning, Brian, this next topic, for me at least – it's a little close to home and I don't I don't predict I'm going to I'm going to enjoy it all that much but I actually thought it was a pretty interesting conversation. This is from July 27th and the headline reads how much is bad sleep 
hurting your career. I'm a notoriously bad sleeper. I mean, when I do it, I'm great at it, but I'm, <laughs> not, I'm not good at getting ample sleep, I guess I'll say. I My last semester at Judson, and a semester I think is 16 weeks, I pulled roughly 35 all-nighters. No. Uh, so that's, what, more than two a week. Not not ideal. Now, I'm a little better than I was then, but I still... I I run on low fumes more often than I like to admit. Are you are you a good sleeper or do you do you struggle in this department? So it's interesting, man. I've hit the age now where my kids sleep and I don't. Right, like when you're your in your stage of life, your kids don't sleep. They kind of dictate your sleep schedule. Right, right. My kids, I'm always a hundred percent of the time the first one up in my house. Like I've hit that age, and some of you are like, I've always been an early riser. But man, I can't sleep past if I if I make it to seven o'clock, that has been like I am sleeping in. I just can't do it. And so I've always been an early riser. So I don't struggle with sleep, but I don't tend to get a ton of it just because I tend to wake up. I, I wake up early no matter what. OK, so this is sort of you and I are on opposite. This is like this is how you and I feel about our discussion regarding avocados and <laughs> Lord <of the> rings. <laughs> same same kind of category. All right. So. The question is, and it's out of the Harvard Business Review, and again, this is, you know, I've mentioned it, I think, every show this week. Sometimes we tackle stuff that doesn't necessarily have a direct link to scripture or church, but I think how we rest is something that Jesus speaks of. So that's, we'll go with that angle. The headline says, how much is bad sleep hurting your career? This is by, uh, oh boy, should I try to pronounce the name? Thomas Camaro Primuzic. I think he got it. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think we're good. It starts off by saying chronic sleep deprivation is common in the workplace. About 25% of the U.S. adults reportedly suffer from insomnia. Wow, that's high. Wow. And a similar number report regular patterns of excessive sleepiness. Unsurprisingly, sleep disturbances increase the risk of cancer, depression, and heart problems. They also decrease productivity. Meta-analytic studies show that sleep deprivation is a strong inhibitor of workplace performance, primarily by deteriorating mood and affect. Lack of sleep leads to detriments in job performance, productivity, career progression, satisfaction, and an increase in job-related accidents, absenteeism, and a counterproductive work behavior. Conversely, better sleep has been linked to improve memory, knowledge, acquisition, and learning. Even short naps have been found to have a significant positive effect on work performances. I'll stop right there mm-hmm. to ask probably what's not the main question. Do you nap at all, Brian? Are you a I napper? Know. I never nap. And I see, never. I don't either ever. It like baffles my mind when adults are like, oh, sorry, I just got up from a nap. I'm like, yeah. in fact, it like anytime I fall asleep, if I'm if I fall asleep in the middle of the day for more than like a half hour and it'll be like, you know, just sitting on the couch or something watching like golf or something. But if I do and then I wake up, I always feel like I don't know what time it is. I'm so groggy. <laughs> like it, it has the opposite effect on me. Totally. I'm always like worried when people tell me, I'm like, did you get hit over the head? Why were you just napping <laughs> two in the afternoon? Uh, it also goes on to say at the same time, there are systematic individual differences in both the quantity and quality of sleep people typically get, which are not enough to explain performance differences between people. Much like any other psychological trait or behavioral disposition, these differences can partly be attributed to genetic factors. I don't know that I've ever thought about the genetic factors. Nope. Of sleep, Simpkinses are pretty notorious for falling asleep anywhere. Really, uh, hard surfaces during a car ride, uh, at a concert. At a concert. I mean, we and and it's like all of us apparently. Like it's really funny when when uh, the spouses get together. Like, does your husband also? And they're like, yes, constantly. So at least I feel 
like I'm not totally alone in that. Are you a are you a sleep anywhere kind of guy or no? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I yeah, I only fall asleep, you know, like Sunday afternoon, preached in the morning, golf is on or baseball and I'm sitting in a chair in the living room. I might nod off, but that's about all. Okay, so there's there's some uh, interesting facts here about the relationship between sleep and work and I don't have a ton of time, but I wanted to read a few. And again, as always, this is on the Facebook page. You can read the whole article. Uh, sleep problems predate employment. A great deal of psychological research suggests that prior to the well-documented impairments that poor sleep has on job performance, sleep disturbances are rather prevalent during the school and university years. I guess mm-hmm. I kind of just confessed mine. Yep. These studies and related research establishing strong, ca- strong casual links between sleep problems and clinical problems, even during childhood, suggest that school and academic performance are significant significantly lower in students who suffer from sleep problems and that such students exist in large numbers since education attainment, including how well students do in their school and academic exams is a major gateway to subsequent employment. Even when it arguably shouldn't be, there are clearly long-term consequences of lacking a healthy sleep routine, including a high career cost. Surprised? Mm -hmm. Not surprised? No, not surprised at all. Not surprised, especially when they say, it's like those high school, college years. I was like you. Like, I just told you how I get up early and go sleep. But college, all bets were off, right? You're going yeah, out right. at like one, two, whatever. And so you get into those patterns. And uh, I can totally see this. If you're a bad sleeper, if you're if you're tired all the time, it's going to uh, it's it's going to affect your employment and it's going to cost you down the line. Yeah, totally agree. Why, why don't you take the next one? Whatever one yep. you want to take. Uh, sleep, it'll boost your employee engagement. There is a multi-billion dollar industry devoted to boosting organizations' engagement levels, the degree of enthusiasm, satisfaction, and productivity employees and managers managers show at work. Although much of this money goes to improving office designs, cafeteria food, and person job fit, and that's okay, uh, there is no comparable awareness among firms of the importance that sleep quality has a driver of employee engagement. Importantly, Unlike many drivers of engagement, including the competence level of your boss, sleep is often in your control, and there are clear rewards for improving your sleep patterns. That's interesting. This is reminding me of the Seinfeld episode where George built a bed underneath his desk. (laughs) Oh, yeah, right. Well, and this is another weird aspect of my life. I probably have I talked about my shaky eyes on the show yet. Has that come up? Oh, I think so. I know we've talked about it. Maybe not on the show. Well, that's a weird thing just to drop into the middle of the show if we've never talked about it. But there was speculation when I was younger that because my eyes are always shaking, that that actually would like affect my REM sleep, which is, you know, Mm. your deep sleep state and your eyes shake rapid eye movement. So that's a whole other interesting discussion. I'll just read this last bullet because we have about a minute left. It says, as always, leadership plays a big role. Whereas incompetent leaders will tend to stress and alienate their employees, ruining their quality of sleep, good leadership will mitigate some of that detrimental effects that poor sleep habits have on performance. For this to occur, leaders must not just be competent, they must also ensure that they are not sleep-deprived themselves and that they avoid inconsistent patterns of sleep. Even decent leaders are more likely to engage in unethical or abusive behavior if they are sleep-deprived. Unsurprisingly, there appear to be multi... Oh, boy. Multiplicative, multiplicative effects of both having good quality sleep and good quality leaders and lacking both can be particularly destructive. I'll just sort of end with this because somebody might be asking, well, what does this actually, what does this actually matter? Or what's the significance for the Christ follower? I'll just say this. I think uh, at a baseline, most Christians would believe that loving God and loving others is important, right? Like that's, that's right. regardless of your camp, your politics, your theology, like we, we, we all kind of celebrate that as central. Has anyone been their most loving self? when they're sleep deprived. 
Anybody? I I am the I am the least patient, least loving, least forgiving when I'm sleep deprived. Brian, I, I would guess the same is probably the same for you, right? Gosh, I can remember when we had little, little kids, when you felt like you weren't sleeping at all. And I can remember my wife and I like fighting and just being on edge with each other. And like, why are we yelling at each other? And it just always came back to the fact that we weren't sleeping and we were just perpetually tired. So this makes total sense. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. We would love to know what you think. This is up at our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And that is one hour in the books. Coming up in the second hour, finding the courage pursue racial justice now that's coming up next here on the common good on am 1160 hope you're coming up this hour we're going to talk about racial justice comedians speaking truth to power and something robert jeffers said about anyone who votes for biden you're listening to the common good Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. If you're just joining us and you did not know, we have a podcast also, and I cannot encourage you enough to go back and listen to Hour One, mostly because of Kelly Fabian. and She talks about her books and her work as a lawyer, and I think she is brilliant. So definitely go back and listen to that. And while you're listening, if you wouldn't mind subscribing, rating, and reviewing, that helps us out a ton. We also have a Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. You can read all of the articles that we talk about. You can engage in dialogue there or send us a private message if you have ideas for future shows or thoughts on previous shows. We welcome all of that. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And uh, we would be super grateful for any level of interaction or sharing or liking or whatever is appropriate. We are so grateful for all of you who have done that already. So, Brian Fromm on this hump day. This is a couple weeks old now, but... Some stuff is kind of evergreen. This is an article out of Relevant Magazine. Yep. And the headline reads, Finding the Courage to Pursue Racial Justice Now. And then the subheading is, If we want to understand reality and move beyond the rhetoric of fear, we have to be intentional. What's going on in this article? Yeah, Relevant. They, they tend to write some articles that really get you thinking. And it starts this way. Uh, Every year, Oxford Dictionary selects a word that it deems the most important term in the public domain during that year. So in 2016, the international word of the year was post-truth. The post in post-truth does not refer to after so much as it signifies an atmosphere Hmm. in which the very notion of truth is irrelevant to begin with. This is the type of sociopolitical climate that leads to isolation and breeds an environment of misinformation and fear. And it is into this post-truth environment that we are called to go as reconcilers. However, we will not be able to be God's agents of reconciliation if we stay secluded in worlds that keep us from the reality of what is happening around us. He goes on to talk about Queen Esther uh, and, and about how she did this. And he says, the problem with living in this type of ignorance and isolation is that it serves to augment fear. Ignorance and isolation feed off of our fear and vice versa. This is why fear mongering is such a powerful political tool. It doesn't appeal to the best in us. It appeals to the base in us. However, God has not given us a spirit of fear. God has given us a spirit of power and of love. So when we sense the clenching grip of fear in our chests and feel within us the self-protective pull to look out for me and mine, we must choose a different way. We must choose not uh, to nurture it. So before getting into his conversation about race, uh, that makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Like a lot of times fear causes us to want to uh, 
uh, face up to things or have hard conversations. Fear is a very powerful driver. Yeah, and it's interesting because I wonder if most people would be incapable of identifying, unless it's like really obvious, like fear of danger or height or something like that. I don't know that a lot of people would self-identify, like, for example, their social media interactions as fearful. Like mm-hmm. That's where I think this gets this gets tricky. Like people will often, I don't know, I've certainly done this. Like we explain it away as like wise caution or oh, I'm being discerning. Like how do you, how do you, Brian, when it's, Again, not talking about like really obvious fear, like there's yeah. a bear, like a, a bear's chasing you or something. But how do you identify like, oh, I think I'm operating out of fear here and not and not out of like power and love, like like this author says. Yeah, it's a it's a great question, and I think what it comes down to for me is if I'm really honest with myself and I take some time to think about my motives for not speaking up or not challenging someone or not having a hard convert, whatever else it might be. And I think to myself, like, no, but I know deep down this would be the right thing to do. Uh, it's generally fear that's stopping me. Fear of the mm-hmm. other person's reaction, fear of what people are going to think of me, fear of, you know, uh, causing some waves, whatever else it might be. And uh, I, you know, I know a lot of people out there can uh, probably relate to what I'm about to say here. I've got this bone in my body. <laughs> like right, right. I, I tend to search oftentimes in my life for the path of least resistance, except for really important things. Right. But um, I don't like pushing people in their, you know, political views or things that they've said online or whatever else. I'm constantly the one like. Hey, let's just try to like put this fire out as opposed to let's get at what's causing this fire to burn in the first place. And so that, you know, an article like this where it's going to go on and talk about the courage to pursue racial justice now, uh, not a conversation I like to have. And, um, you well, know, and, that, and that, that in and of itself is a position of privilege, right? Like, and Daniel was saying that, like, I'd rather not have that conversation. He's like, yeah, we have the freedom as white people, particularly like white men. So you're like, nah, no thanks. That makes me uncomfortable. And that's kind of what, his work was pushing against, right? Understood completely. Yeah. But I found myself in various situations uh, as, as this conversation has really been heightened throughout our culture uh, over the last couple of months. Uh, I do find myself not just this conversation, but, but a lot of different political conversations or COVID conver- just going, I don't want to be in a tense conversation. And I know that's driven by fear, yeah, something sure. deep down of just like, I, I just would rather have everybody kind of kumbaya, all of us together. And so, yeah, I totally not, not saying at all that it's right, but I totally uh, get where he, where they're coming from with this conversation. Yeah. Let me just read a little more again. We, uh, we kind of skipped the part where they're given the context to Esther. So so then go back and read that for context. But he says, Esther had to come face to face with her position, her privilege and her power after she became queen, as with so many of us, when her levels of position, privilege and power increased. So, too, did the unintended distancing from other people. The longer we are in the palace, the easier it becomes to stay in the palace. I call this the Esther syndrome, and we see it playing out everywhere. If we're not intentional, we can all be in danger of becoming palace people. It's easy to isolate and insulate ourselves. We do it without even trying. We listen to just one news source. We read the same paper every day. We hang out with the same people. We drive rather than walk. Our social media becomes an echo chamber of our own beliefs, opinions, and fears. We surround ourselves with people and things and com- uh, and comforts that further enforce who we already are and how we already think. It's truly the easiest way to live. Then the author asks, is it the best way? In order to counteract this cycle of isolation, insulation, and ignorance, we need to examine three things, our position, 
our privilege and our power. Now, some of you might look at those three things and think, nope, doesn't apply to me because I'm broke or I don't have any power or I'm not white, so I don't have any of those things. But let's reconsider. It's true that you might not have what you consider position, privilege, or power, but you participate in palace living if you're an American just by residing in the United States. You really do. Think about it. We don't have a caste system. We don't have the dire conditions that exist in so many other places around the world. We have access to social services and healthcare and so many other resources and opportunities. We have agency. We can protest in the streets when we witness injustice. It's not perfect, but even the person on the lowest rung of the ladder has position, privilege, and power that needs to be grappled with, even if it looks different than it does for the person up on the very top rung. What, what do you think of that? Yeah, I think that that's an important point to make because a lot of times, exactly as this this author says, we go, well, I don't have the money. I don't have power. I don't have this because there's always somebody who has more money than me or more power or more position. And so if we're always looking above ourselves and we kind of take the martyr complex that says, see, I'm one of the people that's being kind of stepped on or whatever. And you go, well, no, let's be honest about what we all have in 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 as as Americans or you know, where we live or whatever else and ask those harder questions as opposed to just looking for ways to be able to say, this doesn't apply to me at all. And, uh, you know, I think that's one of the good things that's happened over the last couple of months is the conversation specifically about racial justice in these hard conversations that a lot of us have wanted to ignore have been uh, not able to be ignored. And, and the question is, can we continue those conversations? But this is good background here about how fear stops us from being willing to look and ask hard questions and have hard conversations. Yeah, let me just read the final paragraph or two. It says, if we want to understand reality and move beyond the rhetoric of fear, we have to be intentional. We have to examine our lives from multiple angles. How am I isolating myself? How am I insulating myself? In what ways is this making me ignorant? What is my position in my family, my church, my job, my neighborhood, and in the larger world? What are my privileges? In what ways am I advantaged over the people lower down on the ladder, regardless of how I got here? And what sort of powers do I have? Esther was thrust into one of the highest positions of power. You might not be the queen of Persia, but you do have some type of power, some ability to affect change. As we recognize this, it's important for us to come out of the palace and use our access, influence, relational networks, and power to combat the lies that inhibit the flourishing of all of God's people. Again, we had to skip over a bunch of sections, but I thought this was a a, a really well-written, it felt like even-handed kind of call to to courage and stepping out of isolation. And uh, either way, as always, we'd love to know what you think that's posted up on our Facebook page. How would you engage with this? What would you add or take away any of that? Coming up next, Pastor Robert Jeffers said that evangelicals voting for Biden have, quote, sold their soul to the devil. We're going to talk about that coming up next on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is still Ian Simpkins. His name is still Brian Fromm. And together we are The Common Good. Hello. I like it. (laughs) I wish there was like one mid-90s superhero show where like one of the team members went, hey Hello. (laughs) We're here. That's pretty pretty close to Thundercats, isn't it? Anyway. Nice. um, I wanted to talk about, I know this is, oh boy, a little over a week old now. But out of Christian headlines, and if we have time, I'm going to take a deeper dive into uh, the Biden-Harris ticket and how yep. evangelicals are navigating all this. But here, this one kind of stood out for obvious reasons. And the headline simply reads, evangelicals voting for Biden have, quote, sold their soul to the devil, Pastor Robert Jeffers asserts. What is going on with this story, Brian? 
<laughs> besides me shaking my head. Uh, we read here Pastor Robert Jeffers of First Baptist Dallas, also a Salem colleague, uh, offered some strong words about evangelicals who plan to vote for uh, Joe Biden. So he was on Fox Business with Lou Dobbs and uh, Jeffers was asked to share his thoughts on faith voters being courted by the Biden campaign ahead of the election. And he said this. He responded, there is not a snowball's chance of Joe Biden gaining any significant evangelical vote at all. The only evangelicals who are going to vote for Joe Biden are those who have sold their soul to the devil and accepted the Democrats, Democrats barbaric position on abortion. I mean, it's so barbaric, he said. Joe Biden believes in unrestricted abortion. He can't even get his own church, the Catholic Church, to stomach it. They have denied him communion because of it. And then it goes on to talk about stats and uh, so Jeffers is basically making the claim, uh, not just that that the majority of evangelicals will vote for President Trump, uh, but that it's a waste of Biden's time to uh, to be courting evangelicals. And that if you do, if you claim Christ as your savior and still vote for Joe Biden, that, you know, to use the phrase, you've sold your soul to the devil. That is a big statement for a pastor to make, whether it's a little tongue in cheek or serious. And I don't know. Uh, that's a huge statement to make. And if I'm just going to be blunt, it is not a helpful one. Uh, let me put you on the spot then, Brian, yes. because that makes for fun radio. <laughs> <laughs> do you agree with him? What do you think? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Uh, no, I think I think it is unhelpful to say that a Christian has to vote for person X or person Y. I think I think it's worse uh, than that. Oh, 100 percent. I agree with you. But I tend to be the one who takes the I use words like unhelpful. <laughs> so uh, yeah, this, this now, to be honest, his his conversation about abortion is a really serious one. Like what he raises is really serious. Yeah. And Joe Biden and particularly uh, Kamala Harris uh, have have a history of voting on abortion and support of abortion that really scares me and makes it uh, for somebody like me very difficult to consider voting for them. There's things on the other side of this election with president mm. Trump uh, that make it very hard for me to vote for him. Like it's, it's not a, I don't believe, and I I'm about to make some people drive off their road. I don't believe this is a good versus evil black versus white, whatever you want to use here. I don't think that's what this is. I think that this is a complicated, any presidential election, it's complicated. And uh, you've got to really give prayerful, great consideration to who you're going to vote for. And that's why I say it's not helpful at all to be like, if you vote for Biden, you're going to hell or you've sold your soul to the devil. That's just uh, that that feels so simplistic and also just a way of twisting the arms, quite frankly, of people who might be going, I'm not sure who I want to vote for. And so, no, I don't agree with him at all. I do think uh, specifically around abortion and stuff are it's a really important topic to wrestle with yeah. and topics of religious freedom. What's going to happen under both of these administrations? But then there's also topics of, you know. Uh, poverty, immigration, all sorts of other things that you've got to wrestle with as a believer and go, who do I trust more? Which administration do I trust more? And therefore, you can land on the side of the Democrat and not lose your faith. Can we say that? How about we say that? OK, well, let's yeah. say that. Yeah, 100 percent. I want to read a little bit from this other article. The headline reads why I'm voting for Biden, but I can see why you wouldn't. A Christian perspective. Can I just read a little bit? Yeah, I think this is helpful. It starts by saying uh, this is by Clint. Schneckloff says, uh, 
once women won the right to vote, Dorothy Day never voted. I don't, do you know Dorothy Day, by the way? She's wonderful. You should, uh, you should read anything she ever wrote. Huh. Spending time recently with Blythe Randolph and John – oh, boy, how do you say that? Lawfrey? Lowry. Lowry. Yeah. Probably Lowry, isn't it? A new biography of her. I've been uh, meditating on this decision of hers arising as it did out of her deep and abiding Christian faith and specifically her opposition to war. I've been through more than one phase of my life when I honestly thought about joining her act of protest. Voting is, after all, an act of complicity. If you think the whole entire system is rigged or immoral, the only way to not play is to not play. The point at which I was most convinced voting was immoral was the long stretch when I was very committed to pacifism. From a pacifist perspective, it really doesn't matter who gets elected to our government, the Democrats or the Republicans. They all seem to love war. It might help some readers to know the general trajectory of the political perspectives I've inhabited. I grew up in a staunchly Republican household. My grandfather served for many years as a Republican legislator in Iowa. By my second year of college, I was already moving quickly away from the Rush Limbaugh enamored Republicanism of my youth and toward the Democrats and beyond. By the time I was serving as a missionary in Slovakia and going to seminary, I was sometimes voting Democrat, but more likely Green Party as frequently as possible. And I'll admit it, I've still rarely voted for the Democratic contender for presidency, really only Obama and Hillary Clinton. As a Christian, I have trouble identifying very well with the overall perspective of either of these parties. With the Democrats, it's simply because I lean so far left as to be beyond their moderate stance on things like health care and basic income. In many ways, I think I identified most closely with the Roman Catholic bishops on a lot of social issues like immigration, refugees, economics, and more. It matches many of the social positions of my own denomination, which is very left until it isn't. Why does all this matter? Well, it now gives you two reasons why a hopefully reasonable faith-based voter would struggle with aligning completely with one of the two parties available in our, oh boy, what's that word? Bicameral. Bicameral. Boy, I have not used that in a long time. But (laughs) there is a third, and this has emerged as the most important to me. It's the issue of disenfranchisement. There are many of us who simply feel like we have no home. You can see this in the rates of voting among many voters, in particular the working class, the young, and the poor. They don't vote, and they have good reason. They believe rightly that the system in place really isn't for them and isn't ready to really work on their behalf. In fact, it's rigged against them. I'm I'm wondering if you have any thoughts so far on this article. Yeah, I can see how a person gets to that point. Uh, I always vote, and I bring my kids with me when I vote, uh, but I also only vote for people that I feel good about, and I feel Mm -hmm. good about putting my vote with them. I'll skip certain ones and do it that way. So I believe in voting, and I I teach it to my kids and stuff, but I totally get if you don't feel like you're represented by either side and you're kind of a, what did we call last week, a political nomad, I totally get why people wouldn't do it. Yeah. And I, and I do appreciate some of the perspective going on and say those who are struggling to vote for Joe Biden have many, many good reasons for their concerns. You can find a long list of those concerns many places, so I won't enumerate all of them here. It's also important for anyone reading this, especially if you tend to just run to the polls and vote blue and see this as aligning with your religious faith to understand how lonely all of this makes so many of us feel because we can't at all in good faith vote for the Republicans energized as they are by racism, sexism, nationalism, and greed. But the Democrats have also brought to us the status quo that we all live in, which embodies a class war that has made the rich even richer and the poor even poorer, all while, while funding perpetual war. There's this old saying, there's no life outside a party. Either way, uh, there's a third article that we obviously don't have any time to get to. Maybe we'll read it another time. This is, uh, do you know Good. Father James Martin? Are you familiar with his work? Yep, yep. He, he wrote an article last year that's simply why I am pro-life, and he goes some directions that uh, may surprise people. You mentioned this, 
particularly with regards to the uh, Jeffers article. Either way, the two that we referenced will be up on our Facebook page. We would love to know what you think because, uh, I don't know, I think it's a really, really important discussion and one that my guess is we'll be having a lot more of between uh, now and November yes. and way, way, way beyond that. Coming up next here out of the public discourse, the pandemic and practical wisdom. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hey, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. I feel like we've been all over the map today. I feel like yesterday things were like carefully curated and all the segues made sense. Today feels more just like like a blindfold dart game with just different topics on a wall. Which, I like it that way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Sometimes that can be fun. That can be uh, a little terrifying at times. But uh, the public discourse, which I don't know that we've referenced a whole lot, but I saw a bunch of people posting this. It's by Andrew. Boy, am I getting the last names today or what? Yeah, you got the hard names here. Jungert, Andrew I'm- M. Jungert. He yep. wrote uh, back on August 9th, The Pandemic and Practical Wisdom. Why don't you get us into it? Yep. And this is, uh, this is one runs pretty deep here. It says the COVID-19 pandemic forces us to confront two realities that we strive to ignore in normal times. The inevi- uh, inevitability of trade-offs and the inability of technical expertise to make those trade-offs. The philosophical concept of practical wisdom offers a non-technical description of our practical predicament and of the kind of reason that takes over when expertise reaches its limit. Unfortunately, technocratic institutions and our polarized political culture are infertile ground for the cultivation of this virtue. And so going more, she says, or he says, the first uncomfortable reality confronting us is trade-offs. The pandemic forces us to balance competing and hard to compare goods. The most prominent of these goods are the preservation of vulnerable life, economic exchange and civil liberties and rights of assembly. All of these are good, but we cannot have them all during a pandemic. Hmm. By choosing more of one, we choose less of the others. Politicians flee these kinds of hard choices. In the face of these trade-offs, pressures of the moment may cause us to focus on one, life, the economy, civil liberty as primary, even though most of us accept the need to seek a balance. In May, Governor Cuomo of New York insisted that a human life is priceless, period. Various groups have sounded alarms over the trampling of civil liberties, privacy, freedom of religion, freedom of assembly. And the economist Austin Goolsby argued for strong measures to contain the virus's spread, not for the sake of health, but for the sake of the economy. So that's trade-offs. And the second reality, he says, is the limitation of expertise. Hmm. It's no slur on technical expertise to note its limits. Experts from multiple fields offer careful and insightful analysis through their respective narrow lenses. Epidemiologists estimate the timing of infections and total deaths from COVID-19. Experts in medical logistics predict pressures on hospital capacity. Uh, virologists advise us on avenues of infection and the time to develop a vaccine. Economists predict the economic effects of short versus lengthy shutdowns and prospects of economic recovery. The best experts analysis come with appropriate disclaimers and margins of error. Each expert may treat his own subject of study, object of study as most important, but honest professionals make few claims about phenomena outside of their discipline. My own tribe, which is economist, is good at identifying trade-offs, but we are loath to render judgments on which trade-offs are worthwhile. So let's stop there. Man, I think these two 
are so big in why we're struggling with the COVID-19 pandemic. This idea of trade-offs and the yeah. limitation of expertise, man, I think this is, I find this fascinating. Are, are you, uh, do you find that you're navigating any of this as a pastor? I mean, neither of us are economists and we're not having to make any of these decisions at governmental levels, but I imagine this is, this has got to be part of the discussion that you're having with people from your church as you guys sort of navigate the best way forward, right? Oh, absolutely. With this one about trade-offs in particular, right? You've got people who are like, hey, we should shut everything down till there's a vaccine, right? And the other people are going, no, we've got to open up. We've got to keep living. And all, none of them, the people who are like, hey, we should just go back to normal. They're not saying the virus doesn't exist, but they're right. saying it's, it's a worthwhile trade-off. The people who are saying we've got to protect human life at all costs, they're not saying there won't be economic costs. They're saying that this part is more important. And I think within a church, you start having those conversations about we have to open, right? Well, I, most people who say that aren't saying that it, that it's completely without you know potential danger, but the trade-off for them is worth it, and vice versa. And then the expertise. I mean, this is social media in in a heart in in in, uh, uh, in a box right here, just going uh, all the people out there who should be recognizing their own limitation of expertise, like they have no expertise pontificating on Facebook and Twitter like they have some sort of expertise, but also knowing who are the experts to even go to, right? You and yeah, I talked about right. this the other day. Like, I I just wish I knew go to that expert. We're all going to agree on that expert, but obviously that's never going to be the case. That's not how this works. And so I think both of these as a pastor, uh, but also as a parent, I feel these completely, right? Like with schools and everything. I think these two are, are such huge reasons as to why we're struggling to, to kind of work out a plan and work out a way forward. Well, a little bit later. So it's funny that you mentioned expertise, because I think this paragraph for me was sort of like the linchpin of the whole article. The dirty little secret of expertise and of the modern era is that we expect expertise to rescue us from our disagreements about the good life. We hope that an expanding economic pie made possible by economic analysis, lengthening lifetimes promoted by medical science and expanding liberties will make trade-offs unnecessary or at least less urgent. Even now, we nurture the hope that expertise will spare us difficult choices, kind of what you were saying. Perhaps someone will develop a vaccine in record time. Perhaps the economy will bounce back after an unprecedented flood of uh, liquidity. Perhaps we can go back to having more of everything. Is it too late to avoid trade-offs? Oh, no, it is too late to avoid trade-offs. We should not expect to be excused from having to deliberate about and make them. How then do we proceed to put health, economic activity, and civil liberties into perspective? We must discuss uh, what end they serve. We must deliberate about the good life and how any policy promotes or impedes it. What does it mean for us to act well as a nation in the situation we now face? Which is it, it's kind of what you were just saying, right? Wouldn't it be nice if there was just sort of a silver bullet expert that we could all say, whew, good. Now we don't have to make any decisions. We have the, uh, the reigning champ, the unchallenged expert in all things who said, let's go this way. And it just doesn't work like that. I'd, I'd be wondering... I'd be curious to know why you think that is. Why doesn't it work like that? You know, I think, uh, yeah, a couple different reasons. I think one is uh, we all kind of cherry pick the experts that we want and we're flooded with information, right? I can find anything I really want on Twitter, on cable news, on Facebook. You get kind of flooded by information and uh, we get into our own echo chambers that just say, okay, I'm going to follow this person and go with everything they say. And then, you know, when the experts are wrong or they change their minds or change what they say, 
uh, if they start to lose credibility as opposed to our ability to just say, hey, maybe they're just learning as well. Case in point, right? Dr. Deborah Burks the other day, who's been at the front of this, right? She's the one, the lady right next to Fauci since the beginning here. She came out the other day and said, I really wish we did what Italy did at the beginning and just shut it down. And you're like, you had the ability to do that. <laughs> and, and, and so you start to have these frustrations with the experts. And so people start kind of forming their own way. I think it's just a stew, man. It's a stew that we kind of think we're smarter than we are. Hmm. Uh, we, we, I don't think we handle being told what to do very well. And, and we end up where we are right now. I, I do really find it interesting how he ends the article. He says, uh, we must stop denying the reality of practical wisdom. It exists. It is possible to be more or less practically wise, and we need more of it. We should teach about it and talk about it, look for it and admire it in others and deplore mm-hmm. its absence. Second, all of the virtues matter to practical wisdom. We should not admire those who are willing to do and say anything in pursuit of their goals and the destruction of their political enemies. Someone who is unjust toward his or her political competitors was willing to lie and bend the truth is more likely to make unwise decisions that will harm us all. Likewise, cowardly and intemperate leaders are too easily swayed by the praise or the disapproval of others to judge well. Finally, this is to me, this is like the mic drop. We should not despair of practical wisdom. Like all virtue, more is better than less. And even a little is better than none at all. Experts who begin to apprehend the reality that lies outside their narrow expertise will become better experts. Leaders who begin to grasp the need for advice from experienced, wise counselors will become better leaders. The reality that confronts us as we make our way through this world ought to teach us and not simply obey us. To the extent that we acknowledge this truth, we will engage the questions and trade-offs that we face with greater success. Again, you've said it a number of times this week. I'm always so blown away by people that are so much better writers than I could ever hope to be. But either way, we skipped a lot. That's over on our Facebook page. And uh, we would love to know what you think over the Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. And coming up next, comedians speaking truth to power. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good for the final time today. Fret not, we're back again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. or wherever it is you get your podcast. Real briefly, and you all know this, uh, Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com slash The Common Good, and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you're tired of hearing us say it, if we get a billion people to subscribe, rate, and review, we'll stop mentioning it on that's the right. show. So that's, that seems like a reasonable goal. Also, today is a National Soft Ice Cream Day. I don't know if you're aware I'm of that. I'm in. Are you? Nice. Of course. Are you? Yeah, this is going to be a weird question. Are you more of a soft ice cream or a hard ice cream guy? A hard ice cream, but I will not turn down the soft ice cream. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm not anti-soft ice cream. So, uh, yeah, I can remember when I was at Wheaton, man, they had the best like cafeteria and there was the the soft ice cream machine. And that did, that doesn't do well for the weight, but that's that is a great way to go through college. <laughs> there's, a, there's another day that today is and it's um, it's not international B.O.W. day, which could be either bow or bow. And huh. I'm not sure. I'm not sure which it is. Maybe it's bowing with a bow day. I'm going with bow. It's International Bow Day, so we're going to just bow to people. I, I think I saw a bow is what I is what I guessed first. But okay, okay. <laughs> Hard hitting news here in the common good. All right, so uh, a buddy of mine named Dan Williams he sent me uh, this link. We've been talking a bit about comedians, and we've talked about it on the show before, even how I've asserted a couple of times that I think in some ways comedians might be the closest thing we have to modern day prophets. 
And uh, so he sent me this article uh, from Open Culture, and it says, Comedians Speaking Truth to Power. And then it's got three different clips, Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, and Richard Pryor. Uh, I couldn't play the George Carlin or Richard Pryor ones on the show and keep our jobs. But the, there you go. the Lenny Bruce one I thought was was quite interesting. And uh, it opened up a whole kind of Pandora's box for me about the nature of comedy and speaking truth to power and topics that, you know, you and I like to tackle a number of times on the show. So let's let's listen to just a couple of minutes from Lenny Bruce and uh, then we'll talk about it. I've been thinking you know, about the uh, first part of the show where I call myself a liar. Uh, actually, uh, that's, you know, it's all uh, tricks and devices uh, that are used. That's where entertainment is uh, devised, you know, uh, trick theories. But that's an interesting theory, too. Then by that I'm saying that the biggest comedians are liars, you know. Well, that's not so. Uh, i I, I got an example here. These are papers. Let's see what's today here. This is June the 19th. This is 1957. But I really love them, and I've always said them. Because I, they show uh, how newspapers, you know, use uh, sensationalism, you know, which is a lie and an entertainment medium to swing and prove a point. This is concerning the Melchior robbery. Now, these are actually legit newspapers. This was the morning, and this, this, is, this is all LA, Los Angeles. Uh, four gunmen barned and robbed Melchior of a $100,000. Now... Later on that day, in the Examiner, Lawrence Melchior, $125,000 holder. Ready? It's all on the same day. The Citizen News, Melchior robbers get $139,771. Three gunmen robbed and barn Melchior of $250,000. Ready? It's nice. You can really believe what you read in the newspapers. Okay. So later on that day, the no, there's the next day, the Melchior robbery was solved, and they got back the $90,000. The New York Times didn't even confirm there was a guy such as Melchior. Which is really a gift. All right, Brian. So this was, you know, decades ago. This is like the late 50s. What, what did you uh, what do you think of what he had to say? is that what he's joking and saying about newspapers is a lot of what you hear people saying about the news now, right? Like uh, sensationalism and telling a story from an angle. Uh, But your overall point, too, about comedians being able to really poke and say things that maybe a lot of us are thinking, but we probably can't say without getting in trouble because they can do it with a laugh uh, is is certainly so true. But, yeah, that stuff he says there about newspapers is is really uh, pretty timely. So what do, what do you think of the notion that comedians actually have a, a higher and obviously not all comedians, but they have a higher opportunity, let's say, to to not just simply make people laugh, which isn't insignificant. I think learning to laugh is good neurologically. It's good socially. I think it's good for the soul. But what, what do you think about the idea that comedians have this unique position and possibility to speak truth to power in a way that sort of pulls back the veil a little bit? Without necessarily, because sometimes, you know, what what a comedian says, a pundit could never say. That's know, right. Maybe that's for obvious reasons. But sometimes it's it's curious to me that certain comedians seem to, you know, kind of get away with saying certain things that when I watched, I think ooh, ooh, he, yeah. really, he, like, he really went after that. But, you know, a news anchor couldn't say that. What, what do you think about the notion of the 
unique responsibilities that comedians have to speak truth to power. Yeah, they certainly have the doorway. They have an opening to do it because I think people are used to comedians. Part of their their charm is that they kind of live on the edge a little bit and they'll say things that for, for laughs that we won't say. You know, I think of late night hosts. Uh, I think the best ones who who walk this are, are ones who take shots at both sides. Right. Who like um so I think when, when comedians kind of are painted a little more partisan, they, they kind of lose that edge a little bit. Um, but man, like, do you remember when Ricky Gervais did the, uh, the Golden Globes a couple times? But do you remember the last time? Oh yeah. And Ricky Gervais just lit into like the Hollywood scene and nobody could have gotten up and said those things to those people. Like they, they couldn't have, but he said it and all the audience laughed while cringing because they were like, yeah, he's saying some things that are true, whether it be about Harvey Weinstein or other things. Uh, I think that comedians have the ability uh, to say things. I remember when you and I had Michael Jr. on, uh, man, we got to have him on again. He, he talked about this and, and I, I sensed from him, uh, he's one of the funniest Christian comedians you'll ever hear. I sensed from him that he understood that responsibility. He understood that opportunity, I would yeah. say, that he has to his audience. And so I think you're right, man. When you call them the closest thing we have to profit sometimes, I think there's some truth to that. And I, again, I couldn't play it, but that uh, have you seen that Carlin rant before? It's actually pretty infamous at this point where he's he's kind of talking about politics and the media. And one quote that I actually can read over the air, he says, forget the politicians. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. And again, <laughs> a lot more F words that uh, would get us fired pretty quickly. But yeah, I think even and, and prior his the clip that's included in this article isn't quite as uh, not safe for work. But what, what he talks about here, he says, if people don't hate each other and start talking to each other, they find out who's the problem. Greedy people. So for him, I think, and this is so fascinating to me that this was said, you know, decades ago, before social media, before Facebook and Twitter. But doesn't doesn't that feel appropriate yes. to some of our current cultural moments where if we actually step back long enough and realize, wait a minute, who who stands to gain the most by keeping us all at each other's throats all the time? It's not mm-hmm. us. You know, it's someone or something else that I think comedians have a way of sort of pulling back the veil a little bit and kind of exposing things for what they are. I do. I think it's right. And especially it's weird. Uh, certain comedians build up that cachet over time. I think of now, right? Dave Chappelle says some stuff that causes people to go, oh, but then it makes you go, yeah, I think he's right. Yeah, right. Um, so there's some guys you don't expect it from, right? Whether it be Seinfeld, right? That's not really his shtick. He's, he, he kind of goes at it from a different way, but guys like Chappelle and other guys, they'll, they'll really, uh, make you uncomfortable, but it causes you to think, like you said, in ways that news anchors, pundits, whatever else can't really do. Yeah, I think you're right on, man. And this is one of those topics. Again, we'll share it to the Facebook page with caution because we know that there is some intense adult language included. But what do you think? Do comedians have a responsibility? Is there something about entertainers kind of poking fun at power or in your mind? Is that uh, is that lost on you because they're still millionaires? And so, you know, for the rest of us that it, it's weird for them to like kind of speak truth to power, even though they're benefiting from it. I don't know. I think I think we could probably dedicate a whole show to that one day because I think it's a really, it's a really interesting conversation. And uh, with that, we're going to wrap up on this soft ice cream day here on The Common Good. We hope you join us again tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you have been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.